it'd be me and him flying on a twin propeller jet plane, flying out three to 600 kilometers, landing on a red desert strip of sand and just running clinic for, I wouldn't call them cities, I wouldn't even call them towns. It was usually outposts. Hi friends and welcome to episode 18 of the Assyrian Podcast. My name is Steve and I'll be your host on this episode where we'll get to know Andrew Davudian. Andrew is an Assyrian from Turlock, California who absolutely loves being an Assyrian and always strives to represent the best of who we are wherever he finds himself. What caught my eye about Andrew is that he consistently takes positive action and he makes impact. If he sees something that could be better, he actually makes it better. The other thing that I noticed and that you'll hear about is that he isn't afraid to pause the path he's on, jump on a new one, but then return with renewed perspective and vision and direction to complete what he originally started. You'll hear all that and more on this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Do you like the show? Then let us know by subscribing on the iTunes or Google Play Store. And don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend as well. I also want to remind you that if you like what you're hearing on the Assyrian Podcast, you can let us know by emailing us at assyrianpodcast at gmail.com or liking us on social media and again, most importantly, subscribing and reviewing the podcast. If you go to www.assyrianpodcast.com and follow the links, you'll be able to either subscribe on your iPhone or Android. Also remember to share this episode with your friends and help them to subscribe as well. Thank you for being a part of our worldwide community of Assyrian Podcast listeners and thank you for showing your support by subscribing and rating and reviewing us. Finally, I'd like to give a shout out and a thank you to our sponsor, John O'Shauna from HomeSmart. Whether you're thinking about purchasing or selling your home, either in Arizona or California, contact John O'Shauna Real Estate Professional at 209-968-9519, on Facebook at John O'Shauna Realtor, or at john.oshana on Instagram. Thank you so much, John, for all your support. And now, here is Andrew Davudian. There's so much good stuff to dig into. What we're going to do is just fast forward to you end up going to uh, Cal, so I went to UC Berkeley and got my degree in integrated biology. It's one of two options in terms of the bio fields that most folks who are thinking about medical school end up doing at, at Berkeley. What turned you on to integrative biology? So I was originally a math major, went to UC Berkeley to study math. I did that for two and a half years and changed into integrated biology. Um, as opposed to molecular and cell biology, where everything's at the small micro level, integrated biology has a little more depth conservation, bioecology, human physiology. And that's what I was really drawn to because of my interest in medicine. So getting into Cal Berkeley is a feat in and of itself. Growing up in Turlock and then making the jump to the Bay Area to do that. And then while you're there, you decide to unenroll so that you can go to Australia. Yeah, so I actually took some time off um, I was very interested in rural medicine. A lot of that interest came from wanting to work with the indigenous Assyrian populations in places such as northern rural Iraq. I was originally trying to go to Iraq for five or six months, work in the healthcare setting, do some advocacy, work with uh, people who are less fortunate than some of the 
situations that I've been in and some of the folks that I've been around because I couldn't get permission or the guarantee of safety to go to Northern Iraq. I changed my focus to something similar and going to Western Australia where you're working with the indigenous population there, the aboriginals working with them really in a third world setting, even though Australia is a first world country. So I wanted to get that experience, really see if my interests were in medicine were around primary care and uh, rural medicine. I learned that it's not what I want to do as a career, but it is something that I definitely want to do in medicine is make annual or biannual trips to third world settings and eventually, uh, God willing, help establish a healthcare system, cater to the Assyrian populations that are often neglected, particularly in places like northern Iraq. So yeah, I took that time off um, while I was a, abroad in, in Western Australia, which is commonly known as the outback. Well, wait, before we go there what you're really doing is you're you're building a model for yourself or a template of what it would be like to go to northern Iraq and establish a healthcare program there. So you want the muscle memory. You can't go to Iraq, and so you go to Western Australia. That's correct. And tell me, like, the kinds of people you're working with while you're there. It was a very unique experience where the closest McDonald's was maybe five or 600 kilometers away. It was myself and a physician, a, a pilot physician, It'd be me and him flying on a twin propeller jet plane, flying out three to 600 kilometers, landing on a red desert strip of sand, and just running clinic for, I wouldn't call them cities, I wouldn't even call them towns. It was usually outposts. They'd be sometimes 10 people, sometimes they'd be 50 people. There's also mining communities um, that and we would go folks, to and serve. And, and those folks were receptive to you? They were very receptive, um, just because they only got a doctor or a... Uh, mid-level provider coming out there once or twice a year. So you're 20 years old. Right. And you're doing that work. Right. And then at the end of that, you gain a sense for what you want to do long-term. Right. And I realized that it's I don't actually want to work in rural care or necessarily primary care, but it is something that I see myself doing in terms of international missions, whether it's once or twice a year, establishing healthcare clinics, and ultimately for me, always having a home base anywhere in the homeland where there are Assyrians who perhaps need healthcare and need attention more so than just about anyone else that I can think of. When you're done with Australia, you then come back, you re-enroll, and then you finish your degree in biology? Yes, that's correct. And then while you're at Cal, you start a program where you're actually teaching Assyrian courses there. That's correct as well. The story behind that is, is that while I was at UC Berkeley, my first semester as a freshman, I took a class um, called What It Would Be Like to Be a Babylonian Student 5,000 Years Ago. And we actually got to write in cuneiform on clay tablets. In Wait, the, in the what course. was the name of that class? What It'd Be Like to Be a Babylonian Student 5,000 Years Ago. And that's a class at Berkeley. That was, it's one, it was offered once a year. And um, I got to take it as a freshman seminar, a one-unit course. Did you just perk up as soon as you saw that on the course catalog? I had to sign up. I did, <laughs> and I ended up developing great rapport with uh, one of the professors there in the Near Eastern Studies Department. But I was thinking about how ancient that is and how there were no classes. At a place like Cal that has such a unique course like that, there were no classes on modern Assyrian culture anything to do with modern Assyrian culture, whether it's modern history, ethnic studies, art history, linguistics, nothing. So while I was in Australia, I actually developed a curriculum, created a course that I was ready to present to several departments. 
I presented to the Department of Demography, Department of Art History. Department, Department of Demography. Yes. What is the Department of Demography? So d demography really works with social populations and characteristics that make up different groups. It's a, it's a smaller department at UC Berkeley, but uh, really well respected and really important. It's used a lot in the political field and the economic field and certain landscapes that can really benefit from the data that it can drive. And a lot of it has to do with helping determine future patterns of whether it's growth or change. Um, but nonetheless, I decided that they would be a great department to approach along with the Near Eastern Studies Department, several others. And I was welcomed with open arms and green lights from literally every department that I had spoken to, which was very encouraging because here I was a student with that, without even a bachelor's at that time, but a lot of passion about modern Assyrian studies. And I had put together what I thought was a very robust curriculum with readings, citations, coursework, presentations, um, and a real pedagogical uh, format that I thought would be would be very nicely catered to the topic, a very large topic, an unknown topic of modern Assyrian studies. So I ended up choosing to work with the Department of Demography at UC Berkeley. And I was given a lot of flexibility, a lot of freedom to run and direct the course. So I was the course director and I was also the lecturer of the course titled Modern Assyrian Culture. And Berkeley is just all about telling that story. Absolutely. Why? I think the types of people that end up at UC Berkeley are future influencers, people who would like to make a difference, not in the future, but in the present. So being there, I realized that it is something that I could do. And it wasn't just a lunchtime seminar or a one-time, one-off thing. This was a two-unit credit in a semester unit system that was recognized by the university for credits, which was fantastic because up until that point, from my extensive research, there was no program no upper level university, whether junior college, private college, or a state college in the United States that had a four credit modern Assyrian studies type of course. So having this be the first was huge. And this was back in 2010, 2011. And it really helped spin off. I was able to teach it for five semesters personally. I was telling you earlier that we had, I had four students my first semester um, but the last semester that I was teaching, I had 30 some odd students with 40 on the wait list who couldn't get in because the classroom was not big enough. So it, it was a combination of the material. It was a combination of the word of mouth from former students who had taken it. And, and I, these are non-Assyrians. These are just people who are really interested in what's happening with modern Assyrians. Absolutely. I only ever had one Assyrian or Chaldean uh, student in my class at a time. Give me an example of what you're teaching in this class. Sure. So, I mean, I started off with, to lay some groundwork from an archaeological standpoint, what the Near East is, how do we even know about the ancient Assyria, the, the ancient Assyrian landscape in Assyria at that time. I started from there and moved forward so that they can understand some basic, have some familiarity, if not understand that familiarity is important in terms of the motifs, the names, the style, just it's a whole different lens and you're going, we're digging through dirt and rocks and finding out things without context a lot of times and it's difficult to decipher what things mean. So mm. just helping the students understand that was my first goal. After that, we fast forward in time um, after some basic history, mostly on the Neo-Assyrian uh, period and empires. Fast forward in time and talked about modern topics, what's going on today, 
who are the Syrians, where we are, again, back to demography, the language. I taught my students all the way through. So by the end of the semester, they knew the alphabet. So even though they may not remember it a year, even a day after, you know, the semester's over, but if they see it, they'll recognize it. And understanding that there are famous Assyrians and that we do have important CEOs and politicians here in the United States with that deal with companies and products that they use and are familiar with. So it was a very, it was a very broad overview and it wasn't very uh, coursework heavy. It was more of a Let's sit down and let me teach you about something that you might have not ever had exposure to otherwise. And people were eating this up. They loved it. Oh, I had students from all different ethnic backgrounds, African, Asian, European, South American, North American, different majors, political economy, electrical engineering, math, physics, ethnic studies, linguistics, all across the board. And it applies because Assyrian history and even modern Assyrian activity has help develop so many of these fields in so many different ways. And that's something I always wanted to do as a educator is always help relate a person's, what they bring to the table and how, in our case, how an Assyrian underlying has helped mold that in some way. And now we have Assyrian studies and we have people getting there, like Joey Hermes, who's getting his PhD in Assyrian studies. But at that time... Right. And I can't speak on PhDs because that's always a little more niche. And you can always, if you have find an advisor, you can really come up with something specific. But in terms of modern Assyrian studies courses, um, we were able to also at UC Berkeley start a class called Inanna. So Introduction to Neo-Assyrian, Neo-Aramaic. So <laughs> I was really happy with the with I love the, the acronym. Yeah, yeah. That was, it was fantastic. But we actually, in that class, it was, we were teaching Assyrian grammar in the Assyrian language using the Twata. So that was a little bit more advanced. Uh, and then, I was, as I was telling you earlier, we also taught an Assyrian dance course where we taught the dances. So it was very active, but we also taught the history of the dances, the meaning, and we, uh, we delved into the music and rhythm side of things as well. And when you say we, who do you mean by we? So it was my sister and I. Um, who, so Bianca. Yes. Hi, Bianca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we... Give we, a shout out to Bianca. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, we ended up teaching that as well. Three courses established while you're an undergrad. Yes, sir. Man, that's awesome. It was great. And they're popular. Like, they're not just, oh, we hope someone will take this class. You're actually getting a lot of traction there. The wait list was full. We had and, more people on the wait list than enrolled in the last semester. And then do you continue on your studies while you're teaching? So I was, I spent more time preparing for my lectures than I did for my, you know, 18, 19 unit semesters. Um, it was definitely my priority. Um, it, it was something that I was very passionate about. I still am. And I'm happy to say that even, even as I moved on to start medical school and I could no longer physically do it, we had someone else fill in and there was another really bright young Assyrian lady who taught the course and, and this, um, Serenita was just fantastic. So she, Serenita? yeah, Serenita taught the course, um, as a lecturer, I was still directing the course, helping her with the material. And even that in and of itself is great because you have a young Assyrian who's enthusiastic about sharing her culture and her identity. And she's able to do that in a place where there's already a structure set up. So it was fantastic. And then what ended up happening with that program? So, yeah, so the so she actually finished. Uh, she actually ended up moving down south. So right now, no one is teaching the course at the moment. But the relationship that 
we've developed with the Department of Demography is such, is one in such that we can still teach the course as long as we have the uh, someone who's willing to teach and able to yeah. at UC Berkeley in particular. That's amazing that you established that relationship and then you actually took action and got that stuff going. And then in terms of your life, you end up finishing your degree. Yes. And then you decide you're going to go to Davis for medical school. Right. So I was at UC Davis for four years, mm -hmm. finished up medical school just a couple months ago. Um, That's right. You're graduating soon, right? Right. Yep. Next week. Congratulations. The, thank you. Appreciate it. On getting your MD. Thank you. But wait, while you're in UC Davis, you decide to go to Cornell. That's correct. <laughs> So you just stopped medical school in the middle or what, how far along were you? So with medical school, the, a good time to do something like this was at the end of third year and the start of the, my fourth year. And that's when I took time off. I finished up third year, um, ended up moving out to New York where I was for, where I was there for a little over a year. It's Ithaca, right? Ithaca, New York. It is upstate, upstate New York. Um, and it's beautiful out there. I had a great time. And believe it or not, I got to meet an Assyrian PhD um, candidate out there. And we've become very close and good friends. And her name is Autur, which is uh, very fitting of a name. And I actually met her because I was auditing a course in Near Eastern Studies while I was at Cornell. Had nothing to do with the business school. Oh but I went gosh. there, talked to the professor. And he's like, you know, I actually have a student who's an Assyrian. And so I was able to connect. So there are Assyrians everywhere, which is very encouraging, even at you know, amazing Ivy League institutions in upstate New York. Yeah. So. I mean, to be able to study an MBA at Cornell. Wow. And it, tell me why you wanted to do that. So I've always been interested in not just practicing medicine, but being able to work on a systems level, whatever that, that may be, whether it's healthcare or policy or something that combines the two. As I was saying earlier, if I want to go to Northern Iraq, for example, in the future, I don't want to just go there and work as a anesthesiologist and provide care for eight to 12 hours a day for a week and then come back. I'd rather go there and be able to understand how to work with what's there, work with the people that are there, take through these resources and being able to create something. And I think with the MBA, you go to business school, you get to have the opportunity to acquire a lot of these tools in a very theoretical way, but also um, be involved in terms of joining different projects and due diligence that you do. You really get a good grasp for what it is like to take on an endeavor, something like starting a healthcare system. Whereas in medicine, you don't really learn anything about the healthcare system. You're just learning about the disease process, for example. And having spent time with you and known you as long as I know you, like I keep hearing you mention Northern Iraq. That's the homeland. <laughs> That's one of the most amazing parts of not just like the world, but world history. And I think that unfortunately, that's where a lot of the Syrians who are, you know, still there are just overlooked, neglected, underfund, underfunded, under-resourced and not heard. So I think it's important to be strategic in terms of where we can only do so much as an individual, but I think together, if we come together, we can really make an impact. And I think having a strategy in terms of where we want to have, you know, a base in Iraq, it's, I think that Northern Iraq really uh, speaks to me personally, even though I've not had the opportunity to go there yet. Mm -hmm. I like that last part yeah. yet, but it, the way you talk about it, it's a reality that at some point 
Assyrians will be able to establish something. And for you, you're you're doing the training, you're doing the work, you're putting the 10,000 hours in so that you'll be ready to serve if when that opportunity comes up. Absolutely. If, if I don't do it, and if we don't do it, and if this generation doesn't do it, then it'll never happen. And fortunately, there's a lot of people that I know personally who won't let that happen. I love your passion for the Assyrian people. And it's so awesome to see that you actually are following through on actions. But going back to your MBA and and you're really thinking globally of what you could do with your MBA in terms of establishing a healthcare system. Would you say that you gained what you wanted from Cornell? I had a very positive experience at Cornell. I think I was able to make the most out of my time there. I was able to get my graduate minor in real estate as well. And when I say real estate, I'm not just talking about you know, buying properties and selling properties. Real estate in some parts of the world means possession and ownership of persons. So real estate is being able to manage and being able to understand what's available to you. And doing that with the hotel school at Cornell was a really unique supplement. The hotel school? The hotel school. They have, Cornell has the best hotel school in the country. And it's, and when I say hotel school, the real estate department is a part of that umbrella. So hospitality, hotels. So you get your MBA, and then while you're there, you also do this real estate stuff. Yes. Okay, before we keep going through this interview, like what other super mega powers (laughs) do we have going on here? I love it. You're able to think outside the box, and I love that you're able to move beyond one discipline or one focus. And you don't strike me as the kind of person who's concerned with establishing yourself in one specific area, although you will establish yourself you're consistently saying, you know, what do I need to do to, to be a whole person and all of that? Where does that come from? For me, I think it has a lot to do with how I was raised and being able to represent my family, my culture, my background, and even where I'm from. I, I love being from California and I like to take pride in where I'm from, where I came from, the fact that I'm a Syrian. Everyone who knows me knows two things about me, bar none, and that's one is that I'm a Christian, and two is that I'm a Syrian. And if you've ever had a conversation with me and you didn't come away with those two points, then you weren't listening. So that's something that I think I'm just really, I try to be a great representative of the values and the background and what I aspire to be at at all times. And I think it's important to equip yourself as best as possible. And that's, I really just have done things I've been interested in. Yeah. Nothing more. But I really appreciate that that you take to heart who you are, where you came from, your culture, and you're actually trying to live it out to the best of your ability. Going back to your story, you finish the MBA, and then you come back to Davis and you finish your MD. Yes, and I'm very happy to say that I'm going to be starting my anesthesiology residency at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, which is um, a, a very exciting chapter. And how did you choose anesthesiology? I just loved the field. It was the one field that spoke to me. Um, Dealing with chronic pain is something that's very interesting to me personally because I did have a bone tumor that went undiagnosed for two and a half years. So I felt what it was like to be a patient of chronic pain. And anesthesiology encompasses the pain departments pretty much at every program. 
So I do have interest in, in pain and that's what anesthesia does, whether it's intraoperatively during a surgery or post-op after a surgery or even in the ICU or in chronic pain and acute pain settings as well. So that's why I chose the field and um, couldn't be happier with it. Well, I'm, I mean, I'm excited to know what Portland is going to be like, but I do anticipate you halfway through Portland taking the next uh, stage, but you told me earlier that you're going to be sticking to it and you're doing the four years. I mean, of course, you're always open and flexible. But just to backtrack a little bit, every place you go, you definitely establish some sort of Assyrian angle uh, and you make an impact. Like, for example, at Berkeley, you went to the admissions department and you had them talk to them about adding like the checkbox Assyrian to all of their applications. Now, is that a reality? Did that happen? So that happened, but I wish it was that easy. Um, <laughs> one thing that was really striking to me is that there, and just as I was voting and became, you know, old enough to vote and would see, uh, you know, different ballots and even just applications for schools and programs and jobs, whatever it was, there was never an Assyrian checkbox. There was at best other, and if it was, you know, accommodating, you'd be able to write it in. And that's what I was always doing. I was checking other and writing in Assyrian. And if that wasn't there, then you're stuck between choosing whether you're uh, something that you're not, which we shouldn't be put in that position. So at UC Berkeley, I was actually approached by several of my peers who were starting a campaign to create checkboxes that incorporate minorities and ethnic groups that aren't typically covered in checkboxes for the UC application. When I say UC, I mean the entire University of California system. To give you a reference of how large this is, which is the largest public education system in the world, the UC system, including UC Berkeley, UCLA, UC San Diego, UC Davis, UC Irvine, UC Riverside, UC Merced, all the UCs, and there are several others, had over 220,000 applicants. So every year you have some several hundred thousand students who are ready to learn, who have this opportunity to identify, self-identify demographically what they are or what they represent. And imagine if you see a Syrian every year, if 200 some thousand students see that every year, that is fantastic advertisement to show that we are not extinct, to show that we are still around and not only are we still around, we're being recognized by one of the most prestigious school systems. And in this case, a state school system and not just any state, the state of California, where one in 10 Americans live. It's big. So we were able to get that up to the chancellor in the UC office of the president. And we got that approved under a category called SWANA, Southwest Asia, North Africa. So under that category, every year, no matter who you are, if you apply to any of the UCs, you will have the option, if you are Assyrian or Chaldean, to check the, to check the Assyrian slash Chaldean checkbox. And that is something that is just fantastic because no one could take that away from us. Yeah. And I'm sure it was as easy as just shooting over an email. It took a couple years. Okay. It took a couple years. And but... if you are interested in doing that, could other folks reach out to you and help I... get some direction i'd be very happy to work with anyone on this when you have such a large system at a public level that has approved this it really sets the president to go ahead and and replicate and continue what has already been done 
So you did that at Berkeley. But yes. Then when you got to Davis, you also joined the Assyrian uh, student organization there? So I got to work with the Assyrian Aid Society and we created the UC Davis chapter, um, which has not... We created the UC Davis chapter of the Assyrian Aid Society as a official student-run group at UC Davis, which had not existed before. And I got to function as the president for the first two years before handing it off. But in that time, and I was telling you this earlier, with a lot of the crowdsourcing, things like GoFundMe and CrowdRise and things of that nature, that time back in 2013, it was really just starting in 2013 was when ISIS really started to wreak havoc on a lot of the quote-unquote Christians of Iraq, or as we know, Assyrians. So during that time, the group that um, I was helping leading came up with the idea of, you know, maybe we should start a crowdfunding source for this. And we did. And not only did we raise 70000 or more U.S. dollars in that campaign in a matter of a month or two from both online and offline contributions, but there were several other crowdsourcing um, campaigns that popped up. So overall, we're talking quarter million, maybe even half a million dollars that arose from this idea because there's no reason for it to just be limited to our friend circle and in our community. And it didn't. It caught on. And there were several of these relief organizations. Yeah. Whatever they may have been called, they were popping up all over. So that's something really fantastic that came out of what was otherwise a crisis and situation that was going on. Silver lining. Very much so. And it seems like you have a passion for Assyrian Aid Society. Is there any other Assyrian uh, groups that you really love and support? Sure. I mean, there's so many Assyrian groups, as we are all very aware of. I've had the pleasure of working with Assyrian Aid Society at the UC Davis level um, and also the Assyrian Foundation of America while I was at Berkeley and really being involved with... Where's the Assyrian Foundation of America? So it's based out of Berkeley in the Bay Area in San Francisco and... They're also the group that publishes the Nineveh magazine, which has been in circulation, I think, since the 70s. Fun fact, you can actually, there is actually an archive of every edition of Nineveh magazine in the UC Berkeley library, which is pretty neat. That's a great resource for anybody who's trying to do research on modern Assyrian studies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Or anyone that just wants to learn more about maybe our particular uh, association at a different time. Right. Um, So that's awesome that that's available. And being from Turlock myself, I love your Turlock pride and, and, and that background that you bring with you. As you've been talking, I've seen this authoritative desire to establish the Assyrian identity wherever you are. You're not someone in my eyes who talks about things, but you're a doer. And it's also you're often establishing things that aren't there creating something new. So it's an authoritative desire. It's, I want Assyrian people to thrive and I'm going to create something or be a part of something that's going to make sure it thrives. And you're already planning and preparing for like 20 years from now or maybe sooner. Where does that come from? That's a good question, Steve. I think a lot of it has to do with being able to fill a void and a need that it's a responsibility in a sense that if we don't do it or if I don't do it, it may not happen. And the other way of looking at it is if you don't do it, someone else will do it. And then the third way of looking at it is why not we both do it? Why not bring people together? Because this isn't a thought that is very specific to me. It's not, I'm not the only one with this desire. 
I'm not the only, from all the listeners even out there, there are a lot of people who want to do a lot of good things. And a lot of those good things are really pertinent and specific to this Syrian identity, the Syrian culture, preservation, advancement, you name it. And it can be done. But I think we have to understand there's urgency that we need to do it, which is really difficult in this time because things are so come and go with just the way that society approaches things. It's all about now. And I think we have to be able to understand that we have to prepare. We have to prepare ourselves, whether that's through our studies, whether that's through our skill sets, whether that's through the relationships that we make with not just Assyrians, but people who aren't Assyrians, but understand that there are good values and there are good reasons and there are good, good things that can come from bringing people together, working towards a single cause. And I know I've been listening to the podcast and I've heard what other folks have said. And one of the analogies that I remember is someone talked about, you know, it's all a highway and we're just trying to get to the same place and might be different speeds and different cars and, you know, different times of day, but we're all trying to get to the same place. So everyone needs to make their contribution. So if, if I can, if I can lift a hundred pounds worth of good stuff, then I should lift my hundred pounds worth. And if you can lift 25 pounds worth, you should lift all 25 pounds. So if we're able to do that, things will move and things will progress. And that's really where we need to be is the state of active instead of passive, um, wishful thinking. And that brings you joy to see things move forward? Absolutely. All of these different things that you've been a part of have been fun? Absolutely. I mean, if I, if one of my students, and I'm very confident that one of my students one day will be an elected official, and I'm really confident that one of my students will be part of a startup or is already part of a startup that we're using, and we don't have to convince them to make an Assyrian um, emoji flag. He or she developed a relationship with me And it's not just that they took a class, they're invested because they understand who we are. They know a little bit about us and you can't take that away once you understand and once you have this this knowledge base, it's hard to take that away. So I don't have to convince a future senator to help pass a resolution and I don't have to convince someone, you know, we don't need to have 100,000 signatures to get an Assyrian emoji flag, for example, just to say, we, hey, we exist and we're real and we want this. So I think when you're able to influence influencers, it's really powerful in and of itself. And as you think about the Assyrian people and all the different areas in which there's improvement and there's growth, can you share one area that always makes you ecstatic and excited and uh, pumped about what's going on with the Assyrian people? It's by far for me education. So seeing Assyrians pursuing higher education, seeing Assyrians at great institutions, even local institutions, but making an impact, bringing in Assyrian professors, having Assyrians teach Assyrian studies, having Assyrians teach non-Assyrian studies. When you're able to learn about someone, like we learned so much about Egyptian mythology and iconography, and we learned so much about the Greek histories. If you're able to establish in textbooks that there's more than just one paragraph about quote-unquote Mesopotamia, which is a term that was given to us by Greeks. It's a Greek word. And there's only one paragraph, and it talks about Tigris and Euphrates. And you might get a mention of Babylon, and that's it. That's all you really learn. That's all I learned, you know, growing up right. through a textbook. Yep. Mesopotamia. That's it. Yeah. And that's it's a big injustice because then you have people who d- think you no longer exist. Oh, you speak the language? What language is it? Assyrian Oh, really? And having to explain that. 
so I think education and seeing educated Assyrians and influential Assyrians is really uh, uplifting. Yeah, and I heard you just say a word uh, that I feel might be behind some of this, which is justice. Mm-hmm. For you, it's it's about what's good for the world. Right. It's not just our history, it's world history. We are just the ones who are its stewards at this point. And that's how I've always looked at it. And for me, it's not whether you're 100% Assyrian or half Assyrian. Even if you're 1%, you know, Assyrian, to me, you're 100% Assyrian. Or if you have no Assyrian blood, but you do something to advance the Assyrian cause, whether it's preservation or advancement, to me, you're an Assyrian because you're fighting for this cause. In the same way that I'm an American, because of what I believe in and stand for in this country, I'm 100% American and I'm proud of that. And you want the whole you want the whole story to be told. Absolutely. There's too much the script is too good to omit any part of it. Yeah. That those are the kinds of words that inspire us, that encourage us because the reality is there's a unique offering and if we don't establish that unique offering or at least communicate it then we rob ourselves and the world of this amazing expression. With that being said, I always like to ask people on the Assyrian podcast, you know, if you could say one thing to all the listeners from all around the world who listen to the Assyrian podcast, about 40% of our audience is outside of the United States, you know, Canada, Fantastic. in Australia, in Germany, in Sweden, uh, in the homeland, and all sorts of other places too, which I was surprised when I'm looking at all the, the listeners. Mm-hmm. You could say one thing to all those people, Andrew, what would you say? What I would say is to make sure to share who you are as a person. And from that, your your culture, your background will also follow through. And if people are able to see that they have a relationship with you as a person, they will in turn have a relationship with an Assyrian and in turn have a friend in, in Assyria. Boom! Drop the mic. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>